Margaret Galvin is Assistant Professor of Visual Rhetoric in the Department of English at the University of Florida. Her research examines how visual culture operates within the print media of feminist and queer social movements in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Her first book, Invisible Archives, Queer and Feminist Visual Culture in the 1980s, explores how publishing practices and archives have shaped understandings of the visual within feminist and queer activism. This episode is being released on World AIDS Day. Margaret's book is partly focused on the tragedy of AIDS for a generation of people that saw the virus disproportionately attack people on the margins. The prejudicial social engineering that created a system of disposability around AIDS meant that those who were suffering had to use every point of leverage at their disposal. Galvin talks about the ways that artists responded when the emergence of HIV-AIDS in the 1980s fractured their communities. She says artists scrambled to preserve their queer worlds, not only through direct action on the street, but also through their own artwork. We talk in particular about Nan Golden's enduring work and the way that it politically activates her community and their losses through image and text, and how Golden refused to allow HIV-AIDS to remain a shameful private matter. Galvin's book is all about archiving as a strategy. So there's a fair amount of time spent here discussing different approaches to the archive, how archives function politically, and why certain archives are seen as relevant while others are not, or certain ways of expressing desire and identity are seen as a threat. Galvin reads across archives to sense how sense memory is preserved by an archive, or how memory is rendered immobilized through a process of arresting the archive. If texts are hybrid, multiple, and meaningful to multiple people, then they can also, Margaret says, be a guide for future activism. We've all seen the ways that a text can change the course of someone's thinking, and how that detour through a different way of being can open up new pathways for political action. What I find really compelling, though, about Galvin's book and her way of approaching this paradigm is that she never abandons a sense of the historical context in favor of analyzing the text's content. The two things are inextricable, and that means we get a picture of the ways that texts present the present politically. This is um, a book, Invisible Archives, that I really want us to kind of primarily focus on. Um, this just came out uh, from University of Minnesota Press and studies, as the subtitle points out, queer and feminist visual culture in the 1980s. Um, so yeah, queer and feminist visual culture, and in, you know, in particular within this decade, um, that really kind of developed certain tactics, maybe uh, it could be argued. And yeah, like I think um, what you suggest in the book is that one of the defining characteristics of, of queer and feminist zine making and what I would call graphic storytelling is it's kind of like interstitial position um, in relation to like the, the much heralded like underground comic scene of the era, which, you know, I like that you just sort of bluntly say has this normalized misogyny uh, to it that is even like celebrated. Um and, you know, which I've always found strange in terms of the kind of inheriting of that tradition even today. Uh, but so position in relationship to that and then also the respectability politics of the feminist movement, um, the kind of mainstream feminist movement. So I'm really interested in this through line of the book because it does seem to offer not only uh, insight into that, that history, uh, but also a rereading of comic studies. Uh, you know, meaning that there's this kind of history of thinking about the struggle for comics legitimacy. Even so, there isn't a lot of discussion of how, like, that struggle for legitimacy, getting a spine on the comic book so it can be sorted into an archive, um, extends into, like, these oppositional political movements. Um, how did engaging, I guess, with the archive that you engage with in, in the book help you sort of visualize and analyze that, that struggle. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I'm super excited to talk about um, this project. It's been a long time in the making. Um, and especially with the comics uh, that I'm looking at, these feminist underground comics, it's really interesting because uh, some of them, they wanted to be in feminist bookstores. Um, they, you know, want to be, and they were 
talking about and documenting the feminist movement, but they were um, in some cases a little bit too irreverent for the movement or um, folks at the bookstores knew about the underground. They knew it was super misogynist. Um, and so they, in some cases, thought that these were men, women masquerading as men making comics, uh, or men masquerading as women, excuse me. Um, and so there was just a really difficult uh, struggle to get their stuff into um, bookstores. Also, sometimes they're you know, lovingly making fun of the movement, and there's often humor is is a little difficult like you know are you punching down like you know not everyone gets a joke mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, there's tons of anthologies too about feminist humor and you know the the difficult um negotiations with that um and so you know uh people like uh art spiegelman or r crumb you know sort of have been uh, a really important center point for a lot of people to be inspired and build comics on. But then there's all these sort of uh, larger histories of comics um, by feminist um, individuals, by queer folk um, that are uh, sometimes happening right alongside these comics. Sometimes they're happening in grassroots movement newspapers and they're just uh, not as well known about. And so we talk about you know, women's comics and uh, queer comics as a more contemporary phenomenon, but they're really happening also in this in this time and were really important, but they did had definitely have difficulties of circulation at the time, which then impacts how they're remembered afterwards. Although some of that, there's some, um, there is a move to um, recover and republish uh, these comics now. And there's been uh, Fantagraphics has uh, done a box set of the women's comics, uh, which is a long-running series, and just this year released um, a, a, a volume of Tits and Clits, which was also a long-running series um, in the 70s um, and in the 80s. So that sort of maybe bodes that maybe some of the times are changing. We can remember these things um, again um, and sort of bring them forward with us. Um, because a lot of the politics and things they talk about, you know, uh, unfortunately are, are coming back. Like, uh, you know, they talk about reproductive rights and that's become something that we're talking a lot more now that it's uh, uh, under threat in a lot of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, lots of different things coming up for me in relation to what you were just talking about. But since you mentioned at the end there, the the kind of um, revanchist forces or just like the kind of right-wing backlash. Um, I wanted to mention that I collaborate sometimes with Stacy Balkin, who also teaches at uh, like the university level in Florida, like you. And she talks about like the obvious right-wing backlash against anything that indicates wokeness, so-called, um, but also all these different kinds of resistance that are brewing in that state. Um so I think she just kind of wants to resist the reductiveness with which people sometimes look down upon Florida as this one hom homogeneous thing politically. Um, so I kind of wondered if you, if you wanted to talk about the context in which you teach and how the techniques of queer and feminist visual culture can maybe help build a relationship to movement organizing that does create space for left politics that gives it oxygen and energy. I ask because like there is this idea in your book that a text like Caught Looking, for example, can serve as a guide for future activism. Um, what did you mean there? Do you see, like, how do you see the scene in Florida? Yeah. So I teach um, at the University of Florida. Um, and actually, uh, Stacy's a good friend of mine. We both went to grad school together uh -huh. um, in a large program, didn't really, um, weren't like at different points. So we didn't really like take courses together, but then we both got these jobs in Florida mm -hmm. around the same time. Um, so it's been, uh, she does amazing activist work. Um, so it's been really uh, vital to being in contact with her and to also, you know, build contacts across the university at this time when, um, you know, there is this backlash um, that in some ways wants to constrain, it wants to constrain what we do in the classroom. But up until now, some of that's been, you know, it's like the the panopticon. They want us to surveil mm -hmm. and censor mm -hmm. ourselves and keep and scare us into not teaching these things. Um, but I was literally my job title was about uh, feminist and queer uh, visual narrative. That's what they wanted me to teach. So I'm doing my job by teaching those things. Um, my mm -hmm. students also 
Um, I mean, they're the ones who fill me with hope right now um, that we can make a turn, that this stuff is really vital. They're really invested in, in what I teach. And in fact, they want to, you know, they want to engage with these subjects. They think these subjects are very vital. I also, mm-hmm. I think because of the subjects I teach, I have a lot of queer and trans students in my classes. Um, and so all of this, I say sort of guide for future activism, because it's uh, providing in sort of remembering this material, it's providing a way it can be reactivated again. So I talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the job of the Interference Archive, which is a social movement archive in Brooklyn, New York, um, formed around the same time as the Occupy movement, but not like directly out of it. And they, you know, they're not an official archive space, so they don't have, you know, like the temperature control and all of those things. So their interest is really collecting things that exist in multiples because, you know, and manuscripts can, should go into a place where they have, you know, um, the ability to preserve them for long-term storage. But the idea is... Uh, part of it is preserving them for the moment, right? Or preserving mm-hmm. them for like use in the moment and to inspire future activism. And so, you know, um, some of this stuff I'm studying, you know, as I was growing up, this stuff was still being published, but there was no way I had access to it. Like it was very small um, circulation. Like it just was in different spaces um, of circulation. And so for um, folks growing up in like a, a younger generation, um, we didn't know about this stuff, but this stuff is super vital. So, you know, I have um, students who, you know, their point of reference, um, sort of an earlier generation um, in comics is like manga is something in the 90s that talks a lot about like gender and sexuality mm-hmm. and allows there to be a more space um, for, um, you know, expression of uh, uh, non-normative or gender non-conform- gender nonconformity. Um, so that's, uh, you know, a really important point. A lot of cartoonists also are inspired by that style. Um, it's not to negate that, but also to say, well, there's these other things that were being produced, um, that we can find, uh, connection to, right. Um, intergenerational connection that we can sort of start to like rebuild a sense of a timeline that might include these things again. Um, and to also be inspired by them. I think a lot, um, about if you've seen, uh, Cheryl Dunier's Watermelon Woman. Have you seen this film? I have not. It's so great. So it's from the 90s, I believe. And she's a black um, lesbian um, documentarian. Um, and she, she does a sort of fake documentary where she creates this early black lesbian um, figure um, in Hollywood. And she sort of, you know, studies and like is researching her genealogy. But part of the point mm. is there that... Um, having these sort of points of connection to the past and sort of seeing that these things were happening in the past and people were sort of, um, you know, uh, living, um, you know, their, their lives as they were on their own terms, um, uh, sort of living as openly as they could as LGBTQ people advocating for social justice. That can be a big point of inspiration. It can be really important. So I have like Mm -hmm. students doing research now, um, about how what's happening with trans politics is very similar to what was happening um, the in the, terms of the Johns Committee, which was a sort of Florida-based, uh, well, it was Florida-based um, sort of version of McCarthyism. And when they figured out they couldn't go against, uh, they wanted to like root out like black folks um, and the ND- NAACP was really well organized. They decided to go against LGBTQ folks instead and a lo- fired a lot of public employees hmm. um, in the state of Florida. Um, and so, um, you know, that's sort of a sad point of, you know, like looking back at that history then and people mm-hmm. talking about losing their jobs um, and then looking forward now. But it is also a point of strength to sort of think about what can we do and how can we, when we know this history, mm-hmm. um, how might it inspire us um, in the present moment? And so that's sort of what I mean. That's a long form answer. <laughs> no, but it's great. It's like really rich with all kinds of things like the the idea that <clears throat> as you say in the book um you know archiving can be a strategy for you know allowing the artwork of of women to survive and um there are people in these kind of key positions historically who um had to occupy multiple positions and do all these different kinds of jobs um and sustain so much energy and and like a sense of purpose in order to do that work of, of like allowing um, forms of representation and expression to survive. 
Um, and, and I, you know, I wonder about that in relationship to what you mentioned there around like spaces of archiving. Um, it does feel like part of the lesson of, for example, Nan Golden's legacy is that, you know, these spaces have to be created and curated and kind of safeguarded. Um, here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, we have places like the Kyber Center um, that become spaces of kind of subversive artistic practice, but they need to be defended. It's hard to like make a business case, as it were. Um, and so I guess like, what do you think, what, do, what have you learned, I guess, about the energy it takes to uh, uh, sustain the kind of energy and, and dedication required in archival practice? Um, because like from your perspective, archivists are activists in many instances uh, in the movements you're describing. So like, how were these women able to migrate between all these different practices and, and, and keep going? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, so at the time, a lot of these artists were active. I'm also, I trace the, uh, sort of the emergence of a lot of grassroots LGBTQ archives. Um, and so there was a sense of, you know, there were people who were going back to, um, you know, uh, reading like Virginia Woolf's diaries at this time and were sort of um, trying to start to build their own archives. And so there was this huge sense um, uh, that, you know, we need to document the self ourselves. We need to keep track of this stuff. Um, so our own artistic practice in some ways is documenting because it's not necessarily going to be talked about or documented correctly or seen or understood mm -hmm. correctly um, in the time, like mm -hmm. no one's going to get it right at the time unless we get it right or afterwards, right? Both of those things I think, um, are active. And so we see that in different ways, um, in the different arts artists I study. Uh, but then, you know, it's about, well, what happens to the archival spaces, right? Like how do we maintain them? Um, mm -hmm. and so there's a long history of, you know, the lesbian history archives in Brooklyn, New York is staunchly independent. Um, they have grassroots uh, funded their own space in the early 1990s and paid off the 30-year mortgage in only a few years, famously. Mm. Um, but we also see other spaces uh, more recently, uh, like the One Archives and the June Mazer, which are both in Los Angeles. They're now aligning themselves with universities, uh, University of Southern California and UCLA. Um, and then also there's a move uh, of radical folks who were perhaps aligned with these grassroots spaces going into more, uh, you know, university archives and then starting to create collections in those spaces as well. And I, so I think, you know, this multiplicity is useful. I mean, I, I think grassroots archives uh, serve overlapping but different um, purposes for more traditional spaces. Um, you know, there are ways that university archives and more established archives can sometimes better preserve, um, materials just because of, uh, you know, the conditions it takes to preserve things long-term. Um, but there is also, you know, uh, the sense of if, you know, a state university's politics go against, mm. you know, what happens to these things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, but you know, nothing is, there is you know, there's, there's no safety, uh, <laughs> anywhere. We, sh we, mm. <laughs> I laughed, it's not funny, but you know, I, you read, uh, histories of grassroots newspapers, um, you know, having their offices, uh, firebombed, right. Yeah. And losing all their records. Um, and so just because it's an independent grassroots archive doesn't mean it's not in danger, um, in other ways as well. And so I think, the more places that we can save these things, build in a sense of redundancy, I think the better hmm. off we are. It absolutely speaks to the energy required to keep going because it is this, it feels like this never ending struggle. Um, but I kind of wanted to pick up on this one thing that you, you mentioned this, like um, this, you know, brilliant turn of phrase that multiplicity is useful that, you know, you build in this redundancy to kind of, you know, uh, ensure survival but you, um, you leverage multiplicity because it's useful for specific things. And it does feel like your writing is almost like this ode to multiplicity. Like there's a part in your introduction where you're thinking with Eve Sedgwick and you note that there are infinite differences within people, within people. 
not binary ways of thinking that fix individuals into limited knowable categories. Like this isn't even just an aesthetic, political, or like strictly theoretical position. Uh, when you look at the work of people like Catherine Malibu, for example, like this perspective on multiplicity really reflects a kind of revolution in neuroscience even. And um, I wondered if you could maybe link this idea of infinite differentiation or neuroplasticity um, and its kind of innumerable iterations to the kinds of things you're saying in the book about the kind of totally singular nature of a hand being brought to a page to create a drawing. Like there's an imprint or, or a signature in that moment of what you call um, handmade materiality uh, that you seem to find really powerful. And I ex- I've had that experience many times too. And I just wondered if you could kind of um, speak to whether that's a personal experience for you and what it means to you kind of politically in terms of like the relationship between the hand and, and transformation. Oh, that's, yeah, this is a, a fun question because in some ways I'm, I'm like pushing against uh, some of the thinkers, uh, you know, there's a women against pornography who are mm. historically in this moment who are very much like, here's what this thing means and it means one thing. So I'm sort of pushing against that sort of singularity of understanding. Um, but also a lot of my artists uh, really want to, uh, in their work, they bring together a lot of things um, in one space. So I start off by um, talking about the collage work um, of Mary Beth Nelson and Beth Jaker and Hannah Alderfair um, in relationship to the sex wars um, and them, you know, putting uh, collaging together uh, images from feminist pornographers, from traditional pornography images that are not from pornography, but sort of um, show a woman's body and sort of create these, um, these beautiful collages around these um, essays. I'm thinking here about caught looking mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're sourcing these things from archives um, from uh, private collectors. Um, and they're really pushing on there being any sort of one way to read the page or understand um, the images um, that they're seeing and, and the politic of the images that they're seeing um, you know, and there's a, a sense that, you know, we're not trying to say, uh, you know, this, this is, <laughs> this is right. This is good politics, but we're trying to say like, well, there, it's complex, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not one thing it, it requires, there's many ways of looking at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, also then you go all the way, you know, through the book and you end with Nan Golden, who, um, brilliant photographer, brilliant activist. I mean, you've, uh, probably heard of all the work she's been doing against the opioid crisis and the Sacklers recently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, for her, uh, she sees herself as a, pho- she's a photographer, yes, but she sees herself as an editor. And so for her, one of her concepts I find really um, striking um, and going against some other photographers at the time is that there's not sort of a definitive moment in, in um, taking a photo where you're going to have this perfect view of one person, but it's having multiple images of people over time, right? Accumulating Mm -hmm. of of the same person. And then you can perhaps get at a sense of who this person is, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, there's that that, that sense of we need to have a lot. We need to sort of build this large collection um, of these images. And so, you know, she has (laughs) uh, some some photographs are very famous. well, she has a lot of photographs that are very famous, but some of them are very famous. There'll be like two different versions of them. And so, you know, when I was getting the, the permissions for the, the photographs of my book, I always had to go back and make sure that I was getting the right one because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's there's multiple on file um, mm-hmm. because she has um, multiple and she's uh, gone through and, you know, developed multiple and um, has them sort of in her, um, in her collection. Um, and so... You know, I just I just think for all of these artists, they are very, 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 very invested in, um, yeah, just, I don't know any other way to put it, but multiplicity, like having yeah. um, different ways of seeing things, uh, uh, sort of not, sort of not finding one way of reading something. They were really, um, someone like Alison Bechdel is publishing her comics in, um, 
grassroots newspapers across the U.S. before there's the internet. And so she sort of has a sense of how things are playing out um, in different regional conversations. And so she's able to bring those together um, in her work. And so there's different ways in which we see, um, you know, going back to this this, uh, statement from Eve Sedgwick that people are different, right? And sort of uh, playing with that difference and respecting the difference, um, yeah. difference of opinion, difference of experience um, uh, of the different folks that are being represented. Yeah. And like a difference too, in almost like uh, receptivity, like what a person is going to be receptive to is going to like oscillate depending on like yeah. the way they learn or the experiences that they've had. Um, and I think like the kind of parallel concept to multiplicity in the book is this idea of hybridity, um, which I loved. Like this this idea that um, some of the texts that really speak to you and that have had this kind of durability are texts that have hybridity in them, in part because hybridity becomes a useful counter to accusations that reduce texts like The Diary or Caught Looking to just like one-dimensional pornography or something. Um, since you brought in um, Nan Golden, like, I really appreciate how openly you celebrate the work of all the people you write about in this book. Uh, I find that refreshing. Uh, Everybody receives a lot of love and maybe none more than Nan Golden, uh, who you conclude the book with. There's like um, a certain adulation for what she's accomplished, I think, in terms of just modeling participatory and multiple acts of curation, art making, archiving. And, you know, it comes through everywhere, but especially when you're talking about um, her best known work, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, and her uh, witnesses against our vanishing, and how they both grew and changed in in a sort of um, a relationship, I guess, of responsibility to her community, uh, or what you call this dynamic feedback. Um, And I guess I, you know, I wanted to ask, I want to ask you to kind of uh, unwrap that idea a bit, because I don't think it's the conventional way that people think about how art gets made, um, which maybe speaks to how it was awkward at certain points to just like use conventional ways of, of um, securing permissions for using it. Um, like it's just, it's, it's not the case that you're championing the, the work of one lone genius who captures some deep truth about human experience um, when it comes to golden and yeah, certainly this idea that she re- rejects too, that like there is no single decisive moment um, that reveals some inherent truth. So, I don't know how to frame this as a question, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like if you wanted to kind of, um, you know, unpack the idea of, of gold, in Golden, this like dedication to dynamic feedback and what you, what you liked about it or what you found um, useful politically about that relationship between an artist and her community. Yeah, no, definitely. So this book is definitely a study of, uh, you know, individual artists, but I'm trying to sort of get through them a sense of multiplicity, um, and a sense of, you know, they're very shaped by the community around them. Right. Um, you know, I come from a literary studies background. There is a tradition of, uh, which is changing, but there used to be a tradition of, you know, uh, looking at a single author very deeply. Yeah, that's sort of, I think you said mm-hmm. the low genius, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm sort of pushing it back against that, even if it's sort of one artist um, uh, on the byline, there's sort of many hands involved. And so for um, Golden, she's been very open about all, a lot of this. So she talks about how, um, you know, she'd share her photos with the folks she took the photos of, uh, and they let her know whether this was, you know, in a private sort of like in the space of the home and she's sharing them with friends or whether she's doing um, a public viewing of her photographs that she often did at slideshows and people are either booing or saying yay or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being very excited about a certain photograph or a group of photographs. Um, she's talked about how, um, you know, folks have said, oh, I think your work is about gender. And then that sort of plays into then how she sort of rearranges the photographs and sort of sees them again. And she's also someone, you know, the bout of sexual dependency is super powerful, but one of the powerful elements of it too is how she continues to see the photos in different ways over time and allows them to tell different stories as, you know, the story of her community um, which, uh, you know, is, uh, 
primarily a, a family of artists and friends, right? Um, chosen family. A lot of them are LGBTQ. Um, a lot of them become, uh, uh, you know, stricken by the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and so from sexual liberation to HIV AIDS, there's a sort of shift, right? Um, and so she uh, gets asked to do a exhibit and she decides in the late 80s to do about HIV AIDS and she welcomes um, artists in to create works um, from their own experience um, and um, to uh, <laughs> memorialize, right? Mm -hmm. um, to say, we will not vanish. So this is very much in line with what a lot of the, um, you know, political groups we know um, coming from that time, the sort of the sort of sense of, you know, documentation, 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 which I think, mm -hmm. you know, you, you find this in a lot of um, social movements as really powerful. Um, and, it's, and it's here yet again. And, you know, uh, when this uh, exhibit opens, they're doing um, collaborations with ACT UP, which is a major group that we talk a lot about. And so, you know, throughout uh, her work, there's just always, you know, her, her, one of her very best friends, Cookie Dies, um, just as like right as this exhibit is opening. And then a few years later, she puts together this sort of portfolio of photographs um, of Cookie, who was, you know, a huge countercultural figure, had starred in a number of John Waters films, um, uh, just a, you know, a major personality. And so then, you know, all these early photographs she has of her, and then also the photographs she's taking as she's afflicted with AIDS and is, is dying, um, sort of, it starts to tell a different story of a person's life, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really beautiful work. And I'm glad, you know, she's, you know, been very much in the news recently with a new uh, documentary. And so I'm glad uh, she's a big deal. And I'm glad she's someone that's becoming somewhat of a household name. For sure. Um, there's the documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. But you also mentioned um, the relationship to, uh, to kind of politicizing the opioids crisis. Um, this, this goal of using visual culture or various kinds of tactics of representation to destigmatize addiction. Um, and that, that problem of stigma is a, a kind of through line in the book, certainly like it's, but again, I feel like the book is more a celebration of the kind of, you know, the joys of a political life and, and being, as you say, shaped by community. Um, but you know, at the same time, there are, um, important resonances with other struggles. Like I, uh, you know, I see connections between the opposition to pornography and the state's stated opposition to, uh, trafficking, right. In Canada, we have these, um, really kind of draconian anti-trafficking laws that I've spoken with folks like Chanel Gallant and Elaine Lamb about. And, you know, what they talk about is how carceral feminism seeks to kind of abolish sex work because it really doesn't understand how these mechanisms of punishment disproportionately harm women of color, or if it understands them, it doesn't care. And, you know, I wondered if you wanted to talk about how the anti-pornography movement has operated historically. Um, like, I wonder specifically, because, you know, with anti-trafficking laws, the reason why it makes sense to people is that it sounds like protection from violence. And so there is like this paternalistic control that gets mainstreamed through that. Um, and, and with anti-pornography, it feels as though like that's the position being taken by feminists. But I think from your perspective, that is reductive. And I, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'll just say like, I learned a lot from the kind of dialectical way that Imani Perry talks about the kind of problem with pornography in her book, Bexy thing that like, of course, violence is a problem. Like the representation, representation of violence within pornography though, can be taken as separate from other forms of pornographic representation. This is a long winded way of asking you about just the kind of history of, um, you know, the resistance to the anti-pornography movement that you document in the book. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of things. There are layers to this. I mean, some, yeah. one of the big sort of coalescences um, and sort of thing that uh, creates this uh, fracture, a fracture within the movement is around um, BDSM sexual practice, mm -hmm. uh, which can involve consensual um, 
play between people, which some of it might look like violence um, mm-hmm. to folks um, sort of outside of that scene. And so some of it's like, you aren't engaging in sexual practice in a way that I understand or can appreciate. Right. And so that mm-hmm. creates a huge fracture and people's um, reputations are threatened. There's a lot of people who are, um, you know, put on blast. Um, and so it's, it's a sort of, you know, yeah, there's not all things are the same. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, not all, you know, violence is bad, but not all of these things like, a, uh, in sexual practice equate to violence. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's very complicated, but I think you were mentioning, um, paternalism. And one thing I've been thinking about, uh, a lot recently, um, is sort of uh, been doing some research um, for a future project, but um, I was able to go into the archives, uh, the um, A-R-Q-U-V-I-V-E-S in Toronto, which is the long um, standing uh, queer archives there, which are fantastic um, and come out of, um, were first, first formed around the body politic, which is an important um, Toronto uh, LGBTQ newspaper and was sort of their records that started this archival collection. Right. Um, but, you know, so the feminists, very much anti-pornography, start to often work with right-wing po- politicians to make these anti-pornography ordinances. They see these things as you know, violence against women, right, um, as, uh, you know, patriarchal. Um, but then uh, in some ways in the U.S., some of that stuff gets overturned, but it, it does come into effect in um, Canada, Um and then what happens is then we have who's the people who are then deciding, you know, um, especially what can cross the border into or out of Canada in the 90s um, are usually, you know, the border, the border officials who are, uh, you know, operating in a very paternalistic fashion and are mm-hmm. often keeping feminist or queer work from crossing the border. And there's some, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the queer bookstores and the feminist bookstores in Canada really suffer. There's a lot of documentation of that in the period. Um, there is some really um, <laughs> some very striking examples, like someone like GB Jones, who is a queer core artist, um, uh, very important, has a exhibit done in the U.S. And so, when the exhibit catalogs try to cross the border, they're seized, and then she can't, she doesn't necessarily have the money to go get them immediately, and all of them are burned, hmm. right? And so, all of that is lost. Um, and it's not; it's just been republished recently that. Um, catalog. So for many years, people couldn't get access um, to that catalog. It's super rare um, mm. because of this decision at the border. And so I think these things, um, you know, sometimes there's there's good intentions behind them, but when you enact them and then you put them in the hands of people, you know, with different political aims, I mean, what happened uh, in these incidents that I'm talking about is then queer and feminist people were targeted, right? And their right. works were targeted, yeah. um, which seems very much against, um, you know, and it's, it's someone else's idea of what, like, well, this looks to be, you know, problematic, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's interesting to think of, like, a border patrol agent ask, acting as, like, a mediary, a kind of activist archivist themselves, um, but in the opposite direction, right? Um, when we think activists, we often think the kind, you know, where our mind goes to the kinds of activists that you're engaging with. But in a sense, you know, these agents are acting to exclude um, specific texts from the archive as, as like not just illegitimate, but almost like illegible, like no one can read them. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, this is why I think the, method that you're developing in the text in in invisible archives is so interesting like you are you know there's an awareness of the politics of like rethinking methodology or thinking about methodology and and so like for example when you read across archives um in order to parse how archives get constructed and with what sorts of effects like i see you sort of experimenting with methodology um Meaning that you're saying like there are these patterns that you can see emerge in terms of how particular works get anthologized and archived. Um, And I guess like thinking back to writing the book, how much did you need to iterate on your method and develop it to get to a point where you could kind of understand what you were trying to do? Because it does seem kind of 
subtle and, and singular in some ways, this idea of like reading across archives to see the patterns in how they're constructed. I mean, I think that took me a bit of time to understand. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is my first book. It's something that comes out of the work I did for my dissertation, but a lot of the the archival methodologies are something that I merged as I was, um, you know, revising this to be a book. And I was trying to think of, you know, I don't want this just to be a case study of something in one archive. And it will tell you about what happens if you go research there and what you can find there. But like, how can I take my experiences? You know, I've been to dozens of archives now in a lot of different places. Um, Sometimes, you know, studying things other than what I'm writing about in this book, but, you know, the experiences in those places do inform um, how I'm thinking about these things. So how can I sort of come up with these sort of general precepts of what we might think about? Um, and so, you know, when I'm talking about across archives, um, I sort of develop that idea in relationship to the feminist underground comics because they are definitely co- collected across many mm-hmm. different collections, but they're collected very differently. And right. so thinking about how that sort of tells stories and it helps us understand how they're received in the moment, but also um, tell something about their legacy. But also if we start to, you know, this is goes back to this idea of multiplicity or hybridity. Like if we can look across all these different archives and put these things together, maybe we can sort of understand something from like a 360 kind of perspective and sort of see around it or see how all these different um, ideas of um, what these works were or who's collecting them and how they're collecting them really inform how they were received, right? And really get at a sense of um, sort of the larger conversations with which they were received, some of which, you know, we can find in, um, you know, grassroots and movement newspapers, but some of which we can grasp by sort of understanding like who was collecting them, where they ended up, um, how they're described, um, what sort of things are collected alongside, you know, all of these things sort of give us a different perspective, but we need to like, you know, do the hard work of, um, you know, looking across or, or understanding, you know, um, these things not as in like one place, right? So I, I am able to make this uh, argument because a lot of things I'm working with aren't like, you know, unique manuscripts, but they are, are things that end up in archives um, because they are rare. Um, they're out of print. They're, um, you know, uh, there's not that many of them, hmm. uh, but they, they do exist in multiples. And so, you know, sometimes this is, yes, go to all the archives you can, but also like as things get digitized, you can visit archives digitally, or you can also visit finding guys digitally. Um, so there are ways to work across archives, um, uh, in digital space as well as in physical space. Yeah. I think it's really cool. And, and like the thing too, is that, um, you know, the, the thing you said earlier that like, nobody is going to get it right. And so, um, there is this like a kind of passionate rationale, like a spirit of like, we need autonomy in archiving or nobody's going to get it right. Um, that I find really interesting because what you're, what, what I read is like, you're saying that, um, the way the texts are selected, the way that they're framed and organized, that these things have an impact on how they're interpreted. And if, if the framing is done in this kind of thoughtless way, um, then that's weird and it has consequences. Uh, and it reminds me too, of how, like when I talked to Rebecca Wanzo about her, her really great work within comic studies, she sort of recalled how she was told that her subject in the content of our caricature has basically been exhausted. Like, and I can't even imagine the gall of the person that said this to her, like questioning whether there was enough content for a scholarly book within the history of black comics, basically her book is, is incredibly rich and, and had to deal like your book with this assumption that comics are somehow juvenile. And, and what she's saying is that they have this like vital varied history. You have to do the work to collect it. Um, And you also have to reflect critically on where it comes up and why and how, right? Like she talks about Black Panther and the ways in which that film sort of brought things back. But like her book, like yours, is this rigorous study of a history. Um, And I guess I wondered, like, 
whether you have engaged with books like Wanzo's, whether you kind of can commiserate with this sort of dismissiveness with which comic studies sometimes still gets treated and how you sort of counter it or deal with it. I mean, I love Rebecca Wanzo's book. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, a beautiful book, very well-written, very thought-provoking. It's also um, glad to see it's won, it has won a bunch of awards, um, yeah, which yeah. really testifies to its merit. Um, you know, but one of the things um, she's doing as well is, is a lot of very rich archival work, um, bringing attention to, um, you know, works that have not been as considered, that have been sort of in some ways forgotten, but they're there if you look, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and if you start to look and tell these uh, stories, you can tell these histories differently. You can bring attention um, to different um to, to different texts and mm-hmm. you know comics publishing like so much publishing um you know there's there's just been expansion and excess of publishing especially in the 20th century um you know especially as print technologies uh develop as people can publish on their own can have presses on their own you know the mimeograph uh, there's been a lot of people who do histories of sort of media archaeology and sort of that allowing there to be so much publishing so there's you know, there's just so much comics out there right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but also you know comics yeah comics are not just for kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) even the ones that are you know because i I come from um at the university of florida we have a huge um and long-running tradition not only of comic studies above children's literature um but what is for children is uh is is complicated and nuanced as well very true um right so that's not really you know that's it's sort of a problematic uh assumption in many ways right totally yeah um, especially when we're talking about banning books and all of this yeah. uh but yeah no i think um books like rebecca wanzo's um i think there's uh, uh you could call it a cultural studies turn within comic studies hmm. um where we're you know understanding the form as uh there's a desire to within some of um earlier texts of comic studies to think about why comics are important to study and valorize them sort of as their own important art form that's sort of similar in some ways to like film studies right what -hmm. is exceptional about a film that differentiates it from other art forms right Mm -hmm. um but now and that's still a important part of discourse but some of what um, folks like uh, Rebecca Wanzo, Ramsey Fawaz, Hilary Shute, um, Andre Carrington, a, a lot of other um, brilliant folks are doing. Um, Derek Scott, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you could just name folks all day, every day, is to try to think about how these things are operating in culture um, to broaden our conversation about who's making comics, who's reading comics, um, who comics are for, uh, what comics can do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, why people, you know, if comics really are just this juvenile thing, which they aren't, and, you know, like, then why is there a comic in a feminist newspaper just, just for adults that's, you know, talking about these very heady concepts? So obviously, comics is doing something um, differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this presumption that it's been exhausted is, I think, kind of like it's, it's ideological, right? Like the idea. You would never say that about like, whatever, like William Blake or Immanuel Kant or something like, because there's just this kind of infinite capital in even citing their names. Um, For example, like, I just think there's, there's something there that um, seeks to dismiss uh, things that are presumed to be fringe. Um, And, you know, the, the book is really rigorous in terms of talking about titles with names like tits and clits very seriously. And I think like, that's what's in part refreshing. It's like, it's reactivating this work um, to use your term, because there's a a sincere belief that it is inexhaustibly um, useful to movements um, or to a feeling of like validation and being seen. Um, And, and also, I mean, this is uh, an episode that's coming out on, World AIDS Day, um, you know, this is this is um, this is a pandemic that is is not over, but is sort of felt to be over in some sense. It's it's memorialized. It's it's um, not forgotten, but there's a different sort of temporality to the ways that people engage with the AIDS pandemic. I think uh, so. I think it, it might be uh, worthwhile to kind of you know return to Golden's work 
especially since as as Craig Hubert, I think you cite Craig Hubert says is like there's this appropriation of Golden's work happening by the current snapshot obsessed generation uh, who share photos on social media platforms. Like there is a selfie culture um, that Golden's work in some ways kind of anticipates, and it is about sort of capturing the self in multiple ways in multiple contexts and states of being. Um, but also at a time where coming out of a, another pandemic, people are experiencing time very differently. And even sort of um, the feeling of, of being part of a public differently, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, the question for me is really around the, the beauty and the bloodshed like the mournfulness and the celebration, the emancipatory qualities of Golden's work, um, but also the ways in which it's dealing, obviously, with very serious subjects. Um, so I wondered if you could kind of speak to what you call, or what Golden herself called her origin story um, in her older sister Barbara's suicide, but also since, you know, this is a, a day where we're trying to th- think through the, um, the, what, what AIDS means. Uh, for a world where the impact like the COVID-19 pandemic was like deeply, deeply stratified along lines of gender and race and class and sexuality. Um, How Golden's work gives us a way into the sort of visceral, emotional, embodied context of the AIDS pandemic that is also attempting to destigmatize what it means to, to have AIDS. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I like to I like to work look at you know texts in general that have a lot of things going on with them and someone who's uh, sort of being very quick with them would say you know they're not cohesive mm. um, you know how do these things all come together and so you know one could certainly uh, level that critique against witnesses which is her exhibit. Um, about HIV AIDS, um, where she's inviting all these artists together and it's, uh, opens in late 89. Um, but part of it is she really wants to show, uh, well, she wants to give her artists free reign, right. To decide how they want to respond, um, creatively on their own terms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just, uh, you know, advocating uh, against HIV AIDS is not just about showing, you know, people who are sick, right. Who are dying. It's right. about, also showing um, someone like uh, Peter Hujar, um, you know, uh, who is a mentor to Nan Golden, a, a photographer himself, and to showing photographs from him in the 70s, right? Uh, earlier mm-hmm. photographs of him in this exhibit, um, attesting to his longstanding career, right? Making that um, available, um, showing, you know, the huge loss that we had by losing him. Um, versus also folks who, uh, you know, um, like Vittorio Scarpati, um, who are in the hospital uh, making um, cartoons that are talking about um, what it's like to be ill, right? Mm -hmm, Um, And mm -hmm. in that sort of visceral moment. And so, you know, there's a capacity um, for um, what it means to be HIV AIDS artwork to be very vast, Mm -hmm. right? And and this is what, um, you know, this is at a time too where the, organization visual aids which is an amazing organization um is developing they also have that sort of same um uh sort of space and range of like what does it mean um to be an artist doing work in relationship to hiv aids or you know if you're hiv positive like what sort of work is sort of relevant um to this conversation um and so i think um that's you know i think there's uh many ways that we can sort of uh take this in many ways that, you know, Golden in her own, um, work is, you know, she has, uh, friends that, you know, uh, in the, in the nineties where they are ill. And so she'll document them over a period of time. And we sort of, uh, have this documentary sense of their illness and its progression, um, versus someone, um, like Cookie after her death, where she's putting in all these, you know, older photographs, right. And really getting us a sense of what we lost, um, from this person who, um, you know, died when she was 40, um, mm-hmm. who in some ways was very much, um, and I talk about this a little bit, um, and other folks have said it certainly, um, was very much like a sister for her, right? And was able to live her life on her own terms, unlike her sister, um, who was older than Golden, who committed suicide as a teen, um, in some ways, 
uh, in reaction to not really being able to rebel, being able to um, be who she was. And so, you know, Golden runs away from home. This is like, you know, she talks about this a lot. This is her origin story. Um, And so being able to sort of determine the shape of your life on your, on your own terms. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's just, it's, what aids activism as visual praxis means is so uh, expansive for Golden, right? It's going to be meditating on loss and showing sort of the range um, of what these people are doing. But also I think something that's super important with her within her work is she's always pushing back against this idea, um, uh, you know, that that their work isn't universal, that's marginalized, right? Mm-hmm. And saying like, no, though th- we – we are the world. This is a world um, of um, this is important, um, vital world. There is something that's universal um, within these this work. Uh, also, universal is it's its own sort of problematic <laughs> concept anyway, right? right? Of what's, course, yeah. Let's get canonized. What doesn't? And so I think, um, you know, she really brings us to sort of think expansively about what it might mean to create a uh, art in the face of the AIDS pandemic, right? Into um, think about what might be sort of relevant to the discourse. Yeah. And it's like expansive. And then there's also, you point out, um, like a spirit of just refusal. Like you say, Golden refused to allow HIV AIDS to remain a shameful private matter. And I think like that refusal is, um, really a force in your book. Um, there's just, just like, a like, again, like a, a celebration of that spirit of refusal, like a refusal to be invisibilized, to be, to have your archive burned, um, you know, to be, yeah, to have your memory like immolated by these forces that um, feel threatened by it. Um, And like the, the counter to that clearly is this idea that you mentioned of like a chosen family. And, and I think like there's something simple and beautiful about this idea of a chosen family and in some sense, like that's, that's like what an archive is to some extent, like, um, and, and my last question is really about, you know, how, because this is a book that, as you say, you rewrote, rewrote from your, your dissertation, but it's now part of an archive, um, and is function functioning as like constructing an archive. Uh, you know, I, I, I spoke with Kathy Weeks a while ago for the podcast and she talked about how an archive is for her this autonomous and, and kind of idiomatic thing um, that she likes the, the word archive because it doesn't feel like a tradition, an inheritance, a lineage, a canon. It feels precisely like not those things um, which have this kind of productive reproductivist like patriarchal quality. Do, do you see any kind of connections between that idea of like a chosen family and an archive? Um, and, and thinking back, like, how do you feel about the place of invisible archives in relationship to the archives you're referencing? Um, yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no. Um, I think for me, uh, thinking about, you know, lineage inheritance as being sort of, yeah, uh, traditional top-down uh, vertical modes of inheritance, right? That are sort of sure. uh, lim- limited, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of who they uh, reach. Um, one of the the concepts that sort of undergird some of this thinking, but not is a sort of direct uh, way, is this idea of like horizontal relationships. This is something um, that is very much inspired and influenced by my uh, my dissertation director Nancy K. Miller, who does it. Mm-hmm. Amazing, beautiful work um, on um, autobiography and trauma studies, and just a lot of different things. But thinking about sort of these horizontal modes of inheritance, right? When you're building, um, when you have to sort of build your own sort of chosen family, or you're sort of in movement with a lot of different folks, and those people are sort of um, family to you, and they're all sort of at that same sort of um, space and time and so it's um, you know sometimes in genealogies you're trying to document what came before you and sort of create the sort of line of understanding and certainly want to do that too but there's a sense in this time that we need to document what's around us right Um, but also to remember it right for um, you know for the future for the past but like we need to sort of encapsulate the whole of of what's happening at the same time Um, because if we don't do it, who will, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, this stuff um, isn't necessarily going to be saved. And in fact, you know, this is a moment too where, um, you know, early gay and lesbian studies, people are trying to, you know, uh, find out about, um, you know, people who are gay or lesbian in the past um, who perhaps were, you know, hidden or their mm-hmm. legacies were constrained. Um, and so it's a, a moment where we're sort of opening up all of the, that conversation, finding these new, these objects um, um, from earlier moments in time, but we need to then look around us and make sure all of this gets saved too. And so that's sort of, um, the artists are documenting in their work as well. Amazing. Thanks so much, uh, Margaret. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this book. I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, it's always great fun to talk about something you spend so much time on and to think about it in a different way. 